So if you could turn in your um, Bibles or open up your app or whatever you're doing to um, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to finish out the whole thing. All right, so let's read Mark 5, 21 uh, through 43 together. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything that she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touched his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Whenever, or when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and they saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So that's a lot. A lot of things are going on. And if you remember last week, um, Pastor Preston was talking about um, demons and Jesus driving demons out of the sky and into a bunch of pigs, and it would have been an excellent Halloween sermon, um, but we're a little late on that one. So um, after that, they get in a boat and they go back across the Sea of Galilee, right? So he's, verse 21 says, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was at by the sea. So one thing that some of you guys know about me that many of you probably don't is that um, I grew up racing sailboats. I grew up sailing. When I was a really little kid, we had a boat that we would basically use as a camper. We'd, we'd keep it at South Haven. We'd go sail for the day, and then I'd get to go to the beach and then go to Sherman's and get some ice cream. That was a must. My mother would not let us go to South Haven without Sherman's. And then we'd sleep on the boat like a camper, and then we'd get up in the morning and do everything you do again. And um, then we sold that boat after a while. Um, and, but then when I was 11 or 12, my dad bought another boat, and this one a lot smaller. You, I guess you could sleep on it, but it probably wouldn't be comfortable. Um, and we went and we raced that sailboat all over the state. We did um, the North American Championships in Wisconsin and did okay there for being a, you know, just a, my dad and my sister and me racing against people who make sails for the boat and make the boat themselves. Like, we did pretty good. Um, so whenever I read about them sailing across the Sea of Galilee, I'm always like, 
how long did it take them, and why, why did people all of a sudden like know right away that Jesus was there? And so I looked up the difference between this, like I want to know how big the Sea of Galilee was. And I looked it up, and it said that it's 64 square miles. And I'm like, well, that's not super helpful because um, square miles are hard to picture. And Lake Michigan is 22,406 square miles. And so I thought, well, let's compare them. So I went on to Google Earth, and I made sure the scale was the same, and I took a screenshot. And this is to scale. You see that little circle in there? That little blue dot is the Sea of Galilee. So when you think, oh, it's this big sea, and it's huge, nope. You could probably see across that on a clear day. So my, my dad and I this summer, we got on his current boat, and we sailed from South Haven all the way to Chicago to visit my sister. And we got up really early in the morning, and we, we left at like 7.30 our time, and we got a, about halfway across, and it was like 1. And at halfway, you can see Chicago, which is crazy. And then the whole rest of the way, we're seeing Chicago, and we're just watching it. And then the wind died. And if the wind died for the disciples and Jesus, they would just be floating. Luckily, we have a nice diesel motor on the boat, so we motored the rest of the way. But it still took us 13 hours to get across this thing. So for the disciples to cross from Capernaum, or from where they are um, when, they, when Jesus um, is dealing with the guy with the demons to back to Capernaum, which is probably where they went in this passage, it probably would have taken them, you know, it's hard to say because our sails are a lot better now, our boats are a lot better, but it probably took them like two hours. And probably the whole way, people could see a boat coming across. So and I always wonder, how do these crowds know that Jesus is coming right away? They're on him. As soon as he gets off the boat, they probably saw his boat coming for a while. And then once you get close enough, they're not moving fast, so you could see who's on the boat. And like we've talked about before, Jesus has done a lot of cool stuff in Capernaum already. He's been there. He's healed people. Um, people have been uh, freed from demonic possession there. So people know who he is. So as soon as they see this boat coming, they're there. And now we're going to talk about one of those people. So verses 22 to 23, he says, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, and maybe you pronounce that differently, but this is how I'm going to do it. So um, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So who is Jairus? So he's the ruler of the synagogue. He's the leader of the synagogue, depending on your translation. And this wasn't like, uh, he wasn't like a priest. He didn't sit there and do all of the sacrifices. He didn't um, conduct all the ceremonies, but he was kind of in charge of getting the people to do those things. So just like I'm up here now preaching, um, we have a group of guys who we work together on putting sermons together, and, and we send each other our notes, and we say, make comments on them and say, oh, that's not probably right. This is right. Good job with that. Change this. Jairus is probably doing something similar. He's setting up who's doing the reading and the teaching for that day. Um, he's figuring out who's, how all the service is getting put together, and this is a pretty big deal. Being the synagogue leader was like a really big honor. That's your first kid's question, kids. Um, it's, it's this honorary title that um, lets us know about all of, all of the status that he has. And so for him to throw himself down at the feet of Jesus is like a really big deal, and the community would have taken note of this because everyone knows who Jairus is. He's a synagogue ruler, leader, and if you're living in Capernaum, you're going to the synagogue all the time, so you know who this guy is. And, and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet and humbles himself. And so, verse 24, it says, So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. They want to be with this guy that everyone knows. He's been here before. He's done crazy things, amazing things. And wherever he's going, they're going to follow him. 
verse 25 to 26, we meet a new character. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So imagine being sick with something for 12 years. Imagine this something being um, blood coming out of you for 12 years. That sounds miserable on its own. Um, We don't know exactly what her sickness was. Um, A lot of different commentaries have said a lot of different things. Probably, we think she was hemorrhaging from her uterus somehow. Um, And this was not something that was uncommon at all at this time. Um, In fact, the Talmud, if you don't know what the Talmud is, it's like a commentary that goes along with the Jewish scriptures about how to interpret certain passages, and it gives advice about certain different things. And in this case, it has 11 different cures for this condition. So here are some of the cures. I'll, I'll read them to you. So my favorite ones that I found. So one of them was you, got, you had to carry around a barley grain found in the dung of a white female donkey. So imagine this. You're sick. You're not feeling good. And then you have to go and find, oh, finally, I found a white donkey. Not a brown one, not a black one, not a mixture of those. I found a white donkey. Is it a boy or a girl? Great, it's a girl. I'm going to feed her some barley, and I'm just going to wait. And eventually, it's going to come out again, and I have to make sure that one of those pieces didn't get digested enough, and I'm going to pluck it out, and I'm going to carry it around. You're already sick, and you have to do this. That sounds horrible. Um, Another thing they had to do was you had to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in the summer, because, you know, it needs to be able to be cool and breathe. And then in the winter, a cotton rag. Or you could drink wine with a mix of powdered rubber and garden crocuses. Or you could find Persian onions, which are another flower. I had to look that up. Um, And you cook them in wine, and then when you drink them, you say, arise out of your flow of blood. But my favorite one of all is that if your doctor, you're talking to your doctor, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm bleeding, and it's not going so well, and all of a sudden they go, ah! And the sudden shock was maybe supposed to heal you. Just scare the sickness right out of you. So as you can tell, their, their medical knowledge was not quite up to where we have. Obviously, we have a lot to learn and a lot to, to um, build on, but it's not the best. So she's suffering from this. She can't find a cure. These cures are not working. And why is this a big problem for her? Well, because it made her unclean. So... Um, in Leviticus 15.25, it says, when a, when a woman has a discharge of her blood for many days, though it is not the time of her menstruation, or if she has a discharge beyond her period, she will be unclean all the days of her unclean discharge, and she, as she is during the days of her menstruation. So this woman has been unclean for all the days of her illness, 12 years. Her uncleanliness means that she can't hug anybody, anyone she loves, she can't touch them, she can't Um, go and be in anyone's home because anywhere she sits, no one else can sit there or they will be made unclean. She can't enter the temple. She has to go live on the edge of town. So what work is she going to do? How is she going to feed herself? How has she been surviving for 12 years? On top of this, she spent all of her money um, on these cures that didn't work. And Mark takes a little bit of a dig at these doctors and says that now she's even worse than she was before. Um, She spent all of her money on these doctors. So imagine being this woman and how desperate she is, how she is longing for someone, anyone to heal her. In verse 27, it says, Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. So this is pretty risky because everyone knows who she is. They would have to, so they know, don't touch this woman, stay away from this woman, or you're going to be unclean. And here she is 
skittering in through this crowd, weaving her way, bumping shoulders with people, making all of the people she touches unclean now, all to touch Jesus. And we ask, well, why does she want to touch Jesus? Why to touch his clothing? Um, the author of a, um, a commentary on Mark, William Lane, he said, the desire to touch Jesus' clothing probably reflects the popular, popular belief that the dignity and power of a person are transferred to what he wears. So there's this superstitious idea that if, if you're a really holy person, then it like seeps out of you into your clothes, and if they touch your clothes, you'll get a little bit of that. And so that's what this woman's thinking. That's the idea she has. If I can just touch this guy who I know is a, at least a prophet, he's done some pretty cool stuff in Capernaum already. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's at le- he has some... God is favoring him in some way. If I can touch his clothing, maybe that'll be enough. And so we think, well, what part is she touching? And she's probably touching these tassel things. And so when the slide goes, there we go. You may have seen people, Orthodox Jews still do this. They wear um, clothing with these long tassels out of them. And that comes from another command in Leviticus. In verse, uh, chapter 15, 37 through 41, it says, The Lord says, said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generation they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassels at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you will remember the Lord's commands and obey them and not prostitute yourselves by following your own heart and your own eyes. This is why, this, uh, sorry, this way you'll remember and will obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So this is something that anyone who took um, the law and the prophets seriously would do. They would be having these tassels on their clothing to have an outward expression for themselves and for others of, look what God has done for us. Let's, let's keep these commands that he has for us. So a lot of people think this is what she was reaching for, these outward symbols of God's faithfulness to his people. That's what she was going for. And it makes sense that like that's dangling out, flowing around. That's probably the easiest thing to get to. Um, Verse 28 and 29 says, for, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly um, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. I imagine that if you've been sick with something, anything, for 12 years, and all of a sudden that thing stops, your body probably feels different. If you had a headache for 12 years, and even if now like you notice it all the time, but it's in the background, I bet if that headache was gone, instantly you'd know. And so she knows right away that this worked. In verse 30 and 31, it says, Immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and you say, Who touched me? Can you sense the annoyance in the disciples' question? Like, Jesus, what are you talking? Everyone's touching you. Everyone. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I went to a concert with Brad Anderson, who used to go here. And we went to this concert in Indianapolis, and it's um, a bunch of Christian metal bands, my top like two favorite bands of all time, and Brad's favorite band. And so it starts off, and Brad's favorite band plays, and everyone's there, and everyone's in the building, but like it's pretty spread out. There's there's a mosh pit happening, but I'm too old, so I stayed out of it because I don't want to get hurt. And then the next band comes on, and they're more popular, so more people want to get closer, so it squishes in a little bit, and then finally. Um, Haste the Day, my, one of my favorite bands ever, they, they play, and the place just moves whoom, all the way up to the stage, so you can't move, your shoulder to shoulder, everyone's touching everyone, 
You may not want to be in the mosh pit, but guess what? The mosh pit has come to you, and you are, wherever you are, part of the mosh pit. And we told our wives, we are old men, we're not going to be in the pit, and what, what do you do? But in that situation, you're, you're crammed in. If, you know, if you've ever been in a really big crowd, people are touching you, you're bumping people, people are walking past. You don't know what's going on, and you don't really think about it. It's like, oh yeah, someone bumped me, rubbed shoulders with me. This kid went slamming into me, because here comes the pit. And and I just imagine Jesus being in this big crowd, this sea of people, and they're all pushing in and bumping and shoving. They all want to hear what he has to say. He's not mic'd up. He's been saying some cool stuff. They want to hear it. They're all getting close. And so what a crazy question for them to ask, for him to ask. Who touched me? Um, but this shows that Jesus is aware of the power that he has. It wasn't like he was going around and, and he was ministering to people, and things were happening, and he thought, oh, God, that was pretty cool that you did that through me today. He knows what he's capable of doing, and he's aware of the power of the triune God inside of him. And they're saying, look around, Jesus. Of course someone touched you. Everyone's touching everyone. In verse 32, it says, but he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Um, Luke tells this story too, and in um, chapter 8, verse 47, it says, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. So I like Luke's, Luke the way he says that she was discovered, as if Jesus is like looking, scanning the crowd, and he just finds her and just looks at her, and that's the one. I know that's her, because um, Jesus is God, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything, um, but she comes out and she confesses the whole truth, everything. He didn't, and he, she's saying this to everyone because everyone's there, everyone's listening. She's talking about how, yep, I've been unclean for 12 years, and by the way, I just scooted through all of you people. You all just brushed up against me. Congratulations, you're all unclean. And I've come now through to touch Jesus' garment because I believe that his garments have some power and they can help me out. Um, and Jesus doesn't tell her not to speak like he's told other people. He didn't say, now, don't tell anybody about this. Um, he just lets the crowd be witness to what's going on. And in verse 34, he says, Daughter, uh, he said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed from your affliction. He, I think it's, it, it's an important thing to notice that he says, Go in peace. She had been released from pain and discomfort. She has peace in her body, but now she also is able to go back and have peace with God because she's no longer unclean. She can go to the temple. She can make the sacrifices that she's been asked to make. She can go and, and have peace with her neighbors, who she can now be in relationship with again. Probably her family was having some strife because where's mom been for 12 years? Where's my daughter been for 12 years? Um, I can't be with her, so now there's peace that she can have. And then we have this word um, healed, which I highlighted up there, because healed, um, that Greek word is hugias, hugies, um, and that word means whole. Jesus is saying, go and be whole from your affliction. So like I said, she's been physically healed. Her physical body has had some wholeness restored to it. Um, she, she's been made whole relationally, is that she can now go and talk to people again and be with people. We all experienced, right, during the COVID stuff, how, how damaging it was to not be able to be with people. Uh, it was so hard. I remember Jack was only like, two and a half when some of that was happening. And I remember one day he was laying on the floor in our living room, just like looking up the ceiling and crying. And I was like, I think he's got a little spot of baby depression. 
And, um, and it was just because he just missed people. He would always come here on Sundays and see his friends in the nursery, and he'd see people who care about him, people in our life group, and he got to see them on, on Zoom and stuff. But, like, we need people. Imagine that for 12 years. This woman has now has some relational wholeness. She's physically well, and now she's, her spiritual needs are going to be able to be met because she can go and commune with her God in the temple. So verse 35 through 37, moving along. While Jesus was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. So Jesus is talking to this woman still. We don't know what she's saying, but someone comes and says, Jairus, your daughter's dead, so let's not bother with this Jesus mess anymore. Um, and when they say it's too late, it's probably very late because she died at some point. Someone said, go get some messengers to go find Jairus wherever he is in town and go tell him. So, I mean, imagine having to go from here to there to there. That takes some time. So she's been dead a while. Um, but Jesus has, has an encouragement to, to Jairus. and He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Just believe. A call to faith. The same kind of faith that the woman just had who walked up to Jesus and touched him and was healed. And I can imagine Jairus being like, I mean, really? She's dead. Verse 38 through 39 says, They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion weeping? This child is not dead but asleep. So he may be saying, Well, what is all this noise that's happening? And back in this time when someone died, you hired some mourners Professional mourners, that, can you imagine that job, how miserable that would have been to like have to always be around dead people and people who are sad and grieving, and your job is to just pretend to do that too? Um, so immediately when someone died, you'd have to set up a wailing. So people would go, and they'd be in the house, and they'd just start screaming and sobbing. and just couldn't, They were just beside themselves with grief. Grief. And um, there are all these rules about how to grieve. And this is something that this stuff seems a little extreme, but I do think it's helpful in something that, like, our society doesn't do, right? Like, we, you know, you lose a loved one, something bad happens, and they say, go, you need to grieve, and do whatever that is that helps you. And a lot of us are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. But this society had this, this all these things you had to do to, like, help you through the process of grief, help, grief, help other people know that you were in this process of grief, and, and to help you, like, reflect on things. So, some of these things are crazy and I wouldn't recommend for our society, but some things maybe we should take notes on. So, rending garments. Right when they took the body of your loved one away who had died, you're supposed to tear to the heart, which was basically that meant just until your skin was exposed, but not beyond your belly button. So, if you got a little overzealous and you rip it and it goes down here instead of just here, um, just as long as it doesn't go past your belly button, that's okay. And obviously, there were different rules for this for men and for women for obvious reasons. Um, and then they would have flute players come, and there, I was reading um, an account where um, a guy was so poor, um, but his wife had died, but he went and like sold at his house and everything he had just so he could afford a flute player to come and play the flute, because this was alerting everyone else in the community of this event. This loud, shrill flute playing was supposed to mimic the mourning and cries of mourning. And then if you were in mourning, you were forbidden to work or to anoint yourself, which meant you couldn't take a bath or to wear any shoes, and you couldn't work for three days, and you couldn't travel with goods, 
And that was because if you traveled with stuff, you could go further than like the edge of your town. If you didn't have anything, you'd always have to go home every night. You couldn't shave or do anything for your comfort. You couldn't read the law or the prophets because that should be a joyous reading, of reading all the things God has done for you and will do for you. But you could read Job, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. That's definitely some reading to help cheer you up. Um, you couldn't eat in your, you could only eat in your own house, but you couldn't have any meat or wine. And uh, you couldn't leave town for 30 days. And when you did eat, you had to sit on your floor and use your chair as a table. And it was really common for people to eat eggs that were dipped in ashes and salt. The ashes to represent um, that we all come from the earth and we'll go back to the earth, and the salt to represent our tears when we're mourning. And these rules went on and on and on. I could have written more, but there was a lot of different things that these people were doing. So this mourning is all happening for the, for the daughter who has died. Um, and Jesus says, well, guys, she's just asleep. And you have to imagine the people being like, Jesus, we know when someone's dead. Like, we're not dummies. We may be trying to scare people out of their illnesses, but we're not stupid. And so, um, and we, we may question, like, well, was she really asleep? Did Jesus just wake her up? We look back at Luke's account, and I'm going to give you a little spoiler. He's going to bring her back to life. Um, Luke 8.55 says, her spirit returned. And a spirit cannot return if it did not leave. And so... If it didn't leave, she wouldn't have been dead, right? But it did leave, so we can assume that sleep means that she's dead. So in verse 40 and 41, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's interesting that they're, they're so quick to laugh after they've just been wailing and crying and beside themselves. And this just shows the insincerity of the professional mourners, right? This is just a job to them. They don't actually care about this little girl who's died. And we have this weird phrase, talitha kum. So this is an Aramaic phrase that was inserted into a Greek manuscript. So we talked many moons ago when we started this series about where Mark, the book of Mark came from and who wrote it and where, who did what in this process. And so... We remember that Mark was probably writing this down as what Peter was telling him. And we say, well, why is this in here? Because did Mark speak Aramaic? I don't know the answer to that. It is weird, though, that in this whole thing of Greek, you put something else. If I wrote a whole book in English and then threw in some German, that doesn't, why? And I think it's because this is just one of those details that Peter was there. He saw this happen. And what does this mean? So, little, little girl, I say to you, get up. Okay. But this little girl phrase, sometimes people will say, oh, little girl, you know, and you look down on someone for being little or small or whatever, but this phrase little girl is a gentle, familial, familial term. Think something like sweetheart, honey, darling, something that your dad would say to you when you're a little kid. So Jesus approaches her with tenderness and tells her to just get up. Verse 42 and 43, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. They gave, then he gave strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So this little parenthetical, she's 12 years old. This is important because at 12 years old and like a few months, a girl became a woman. But if she was just freshly 12 years old, she was still a girl. So it was a big deal for a family if their daughter died before she's married because that's a whole lot of responsibility that that daughter would have in marriage. That she would, that was an economic transaction. A daughter getting married, um, you got a bride price for that, and like 
there's a whole lot of reasons why it was important that your daughter get married. And so when she died before she was married, obviously sad because it's a child passing away. That's always sad. But even sadder because there's all this future stuff, all this stuff tied up in being married for the daughter that the family was also going to miss out on. Um, so that's why he throws that in there. And I love that he's like, don't tell anybody about what just happened. Well, Jesus, <laughs> how can we not? There were just these professional mourners who weren't part of the family, but they're here. They saw a dead girl. Um, the messenger came out and told Jesus in front of a big crowd, Jairus, your daughter's dead. And then they say, well, don't, don't tell anyone about it. Everyone kind of knows that she was dead, right? Like, they're going to see her at some point going down to the market or to the synagogue. And they'll be like, wait, wait a minute. You were just dead. So why is Jesus saying this to him? Well, Jesus is trying to get out of town. And maybe let's just keep this low-key for a minute. Because obviously, I think Jesus knows she's going to... There's no way to hide a person who was dead and comes back to life. You can't do that. Um, so they're going to know. So Jesus is trying to get out of here and get to the next place. So then we have to ask at the end of this passage, great, interesting stories. Wonderful for Jairus that his daughter was healed. Wonderful for his daughter. Um, wonderful for the woman with her bleeding. Um, what do we do with all of this? And we go back to these helpful questions we've been asking throughout this series about who is Jesus? And so this passage will tell us that Jesus has authority over the body. He has the authority to heal us. He has the authority to um, make us whole again physically. We've seen this in our own church community. We've seen this throughout Scripture. Um, and we see it in, in our world today that sometimes we pray and we ask God for healing and it happens. Jesus has authority over the body. Jesus also has authority over death. So I'm realizing as I've been putting my notes together that every time I do these notes, it's almost, you're going to get every time a little taste of what media is John consuming at the moment. And so one of these things is, I've been listening to this podcast, shocker, um, and it's um, Christianity Today put it out in October. It was like their Halloween series. And people always do this. They put out a spooky episode of their show during the Halloween time or whatever. And they put out this show called Be Afraid. And it's all about fear and Christianity and horror movies and fear in our popular culture and what that does and what, why do we do all this stuff. And I've learned a lot because I'm not a big consumer of horror movies, but I've learned that there are different genres. I know which ones I like and don't like now. I could tell you. Um, but one of the most interesting things that, that I've heard is there have been some social scientists and psychologists talking about why do we even like horror movies as a society. Like Some of you may like them. Some of you may not like them. But why do we have them? Are they useful? What's the point? And um, one thing about horror movies is, is they let people practice fearful situations in a safe environment. So it lets your body respond with fear to something that can't actually hurt you because it's a movie or a show or a book or whatever. And so you may be afraid of being taken hostage, and there are plenty of horror movies about that. And you can watch them, and you can think about how would I react to this, and the research people have done shows that those people are actually better suited to deal with something like that or just an adverse situation because they've like kind of thought it out already. And so I bring this up to say that there are lots of things we can be afraid about and we can kind of like plan out in our heads, okay, how am I going to, how would I deal with that situation? How would I deal with, with uh, you know, the thing from the Black Lagoon coming after me? How, how might I deal with that? Um, but death is one of those things that we can't do that with. Like, we don't get to experience that and then say, I'm going to get through this. There's no getting through it. 
It just is. It's a thing that happens to all of us, and we can't get around it. But Jesus has demonstrated that he has authority over death. Um, he has the power over the most powerful force that acts on people. Every single one of us is going to die. Every single one of us is going to face this. And, um, but Jesus has the authority over this, right? He rose from the dead himself. He's risen. He's, uh, he's uh, brought this little girl back to life. He's, he'll bring Lazarus back to life. This happens again and again in Scripture. I found this poem a while ago, and I've been like, that'll be perfect for a sermon someday. I'm just holding on to it, waiting. And this is the sermon, so congratulations. So there's this poem. It's um, called A Dialogue Anthem. It's by George Herbert, and he lived between 1593 and 1633. So get ready for some these and thys. And it's this conversation between death and a Christian. And you'll know which stanza is which when I read it to you. Um, But this is a dialogue anthem. Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Alas, poor mortal, void of story, go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. Spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. I love that poem. Jesus has the authority over death, so much so that it's not just he's going to raise us from the dead, but death will be gone. That's who Jesus is. And to, make, to build on these first two points, he has the authority over bodies, he has authority over death, and he cares about us. He could have said, oh well, when that girl died. Who is, who is she to him? Just Jairus' daughter. Um, when that woman came and and touched his garment, he could have said, get off of me, you just made me unclean, what are you doing? Um, but he didn't do that. I imagine how hard it must have been for Jesus walking around, just existing, and seeing all of these people that he loves, all of them, dealing with pain and suffering and sickness, and like, how could you just walk around and experience that all the time? And he did, and he cares about us. So what does this passage tell us about the kingdom of God? Well, it tells us that resurrection and healing are hallmarks of the kingdom. Like I said before, the young girl in this passage, Lazarus, Jesus himself, um, Bartimaeus, even he can see why kids love the taste of cinnamon toast crunch. Um, all these people healed over and over again, people resurrected. It's all part of the kingdom of God. We will be healed and resurrected. Maybe you say, well, I have an illness and Jesus has never healed me. Okay? But the gospel has brought healing to relationships. It's brought physical healing. It's brought healing um, in families, in nations, all over the world. Things are healed. And people are, have been resurrected throughout history through the power of God. And relationships have been resurrected. Families have been brought closer together. Ties that were broken off and severed and dead have been brought back to life. People who have been ready to give up on everything have been brought back to life. We also see that the kingdom is for all classes of people. Jesus looked at this woman who had nothing. It said she had no money. She, didn't, she couldn't work. She didn't have a place to live. She was just living on the street, on the outskirts of town. She had nothing, and he cared about her. And then we see Jairus, who probably had a pretty comfortable house, probably had some servants, probably had, you know, everything you could ask for at this time. Um, he didn't have, you know, a wonderful sleep number bed like some of you may have or something nice, but he had everything you could ask for in this time, and he cared about him too. We see throughout Scripture, Jesus cares for 
the poor and talks a lot about caring for the poor and the downtrodden, and here he's doing it too. We see that the kingdom is made up of those people with imperfect faith. God saw fit to reward the faith of a bleeding woman even though she thought that her faith was Yes, in Jesus, but also that, like, his clothes had some magical properties. Her faith wasn't perfect there, right? Like, she was believing something that wasn't true. Um, And I'm not saying that Jesus is okay with us just believing any old heresy we want. But I am saying that, like, we can not be perfect in, in how we believe. We can doubt Jesus sometimes. Because Jesus, he saw, Jairus saw Jesus heal, but then did not think that Jesus could help in the situation he was then in. Right? Jairus' faith was not perfect. He had wonderful faith at first. Heal my daughter. But then when she was dead, well, where did his faith go? Moses took matters into his own hands a few times. Abraham lied. These people didn't have perfect faith. But God brings those with faith, though imperfect, into his kingdom over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And he hasn't stopped doing that. And finally, we see that sometimes things happen that aren't what we want, but God is still good. I can't imagine that Jairus saw Jesus heal his daughter, or Jairus says, heal my daughter, and then she died. And that's not what he wanted. And even though Jesus eventually did bring her back to life, can you imagine those, like, I don't know how long it took for Jesus to get from there to Jairus' house and do the healing. That's some amount of time where Jairus just lost his child. And I haven't lost a child, thank God. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine losing a child. But I have had plenty of times in my life where things didn't happen the way I wanted to. I'm starting to feel like Matt being the weeping, weeping preacher, because here we go. Um, you know, I, I went to college, got my degree in biomedical science with a minor in chemistry and psychology, and I thought, that's a pretty good mix to be a doctor. I'll be a doctor. And I took prep courses to take the MCAT, which is the test everyone has to take to get into medical school, and I did okay. And I did applications and paid money for applications and secondary applications, which cost more than your primary applications and, and all this stuff and going through it. And I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then it didn't happen. And Katie's upset because she said, I signed up to marry a doctor. Um, but, oh well. And, you know, and there's more serious things. Um, in a few weeks, it'll be 10 years since my best friend passed away. We prayed for him, and some of you prayed for him. And God didn't heal him. Um, we see death all around us, and we think, well, why, God? You have authority over the body. You have authority over death. Do something. And sometimes it's not what we want, but God is still good. Jairus wanted him to heal his daughter. He didn't want her to die first, but God was still good to heal his daughter. And now we have this testimony of how powerful God is because of that. Jairus didn't see the, the benefit of this. Sorry, this thing keeps coming off. Jairus didn't see the benefit of that all those years ago. But we get to enjoy the benefit of that now. I'm not saying that every single bad thing happens for a reason. Obviously, it doesn't. But God can use every bad thing for his purposes. Sometimes we have things that happen that, because sin exists, like it's not, there's no reason for it. Why did that car spin off the road and slam into that telephone pole and that family died? There's maybe, there may be no reason. It's because sin. Um, but God can use everything, and God is still good, even when the bad things happen. So I hope is that we continue through Mark, we can keep pondering these questions about who is Jesus, what did he do, what is the kingdom, and we can keep learning these things that, yeah, they may be hard truths to swallow, that yeah, sometimes God's not going to do what we want him to do. But guess what? He's God and we're not. He's all the things that we've talked about for a long time. Omniscient, omnipotent, he knows all, he's all-powerful, um, and he's all-loving. He does love us and care about us.